Let's turn in our Bible, shall we, to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew. We're going to read from chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, a little bit later on in the service. Now, um, I'm going to get to this reading in a few minutes, so don't worry that I'm not going to read it straight away. But if you uh, have a Bible with you, open up to it just now. If you don't have a Bible, and if you pop your hands up, our stewards will really be happy to bring you a Bible. Um, and I was going to say as well, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, and you've, you don't actually have a Bible, we've got some of these ones at the, at the, the bookstall, where afterwards, if you just go and ask someone for one of the free wee blue Bibles... Uh, they will be very happy to give you one. That would be our gift to you tonight. But we're looking at Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. Now, we are in a series uh, called The Elements of Disciple Making. And our aim is to sharpen our convictions around this crucial task given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And last week, we asked the question, uh, in the purple box there, why make disciples? And the answer we came to was this. Because God's goal in all of history is to glorify his son in the midst of the people he has rescued from darkness. If this is what God is doing, then that's what we want to do. And if we're not doing that, we need to take steps to align ourselves with his purposes. And indeed, be ruthless about the kind of change that needs to take place. But what exactly is a disciple? That's the question we're asking tonight. What is a disciple? Now, we might be tempted to say, oh, Liam, this really is elementary. Surely we know the answer to this one. We know what a disciple is. Let's just skip this one. But I don't think we can. Um, because I think that the meaning of the word has changed over time. Christian authors use it differently today, even to the way it was used 10 years ago. And that's not really a massive surprise, given the fact that the meaning of words can change over time. I mean, I read a book a couple of years ago called The Etymologicon. It's a fantastic little book by a guy called Mark Forsyth. And one of the things that strikes you about the book is just how much the meaning of words changes over time. For example, the word naughty. In 14th century English, the word naughty was used to describe the basest of people in society. I mean, calling someone naughty was to say that they were not, that they were actually worthless, uh, or taken literally, it would mean that they are non-human. Now, that adds a whole new dimension to the naughty step uh, in parenting, doesn't it? Is that what we're saying? Sit on that step there, you non-human, ill-disciplined child. No, that's of course not what we're saying. It simply means, as the meaning has changed, mischievous or disobedient. So the meaning of words can change over time. That's an example of how the meaning of a word can change or even lose its power, but we can't. This is what I want to stress tonight. We cannot allow that to happen to the word disciple. Because if we are confused about what a disciple is, we will not make what Jesus commissions us to make. And he says, you've got to make disciples. So in this series, this a vital step in clarifying our convictions about making disciples means 
clarifying exactly what we mean by this word so that every single one of us in this church family can say, I know exactly what that means. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with a definition of a disciple and then provide two pictures that elaborate on that definition and hopefully make it memorable for you. So please use the sermon outline that's been uh, handed out to you as well. It'll be helpful if you, if you uh, want to follow along. So what is a disciple? Well, simply put, a disciple is a learner. Uh, in the four Gospels, that's what the word is used to describe. A learner, uh, a student, someone who is apprenticed to a teacher. It's, it's that simple. And the word disciple is used in this way of three different groups in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Jesus has disciples. John the Baptist has disciples. Uh, the Pharisees have disciples. All that fit this bill. And Luke 5.33 helpfully includes all three in one verse. The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. So do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, your disciples, eat and drink. Okay, we're not going to go into what that verse means just now. Suffice to say it shows us that it references what disciples are. But what do disciples actually do? Well, no matter what group you look at in the Gospels, a disciple learns their teacher's teaching and learns their teacher's wisdom, or to put it another way, their way of life. They receive instruction. They ask questions. They follow that teacher around at all times. So that's telling us it's no university degree. It's not 10 hours of classes and sleeping way more than you should. It's, it's life on life stuff all the time. A disciple definitely would be in a proverbial classroom with the teacher, but also walking along the road with him, in his house with him. And that's probably why the word follower might have been the word that would have come to your mind when I asked the question, what is a disciple? Most people think follower. It's a common definition. It's not bad. It maybe just doesn't really catch the full meaning of the words. So I want to say it's obvious from the New Testament the use of the word that learner is more appropriate because it's not just following that's taking place but devoted learning, devoted learning that's taking place. Now if that's what a disciple is, what is, what is a disciple's goal? Well, it's quite simply transformation. And this involves uh, two things, learning and unlearning. So it involves learning in the sense that you become like your teacher. As Luke chapter 6 verse 40 says, the student, or the Greek word in there is disciple, is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Okay, so a disciple's goal was to vote his or herself to knowing what their teacher knew and living how their teacher lived. And the same is true for us. A disciple is a learner looking to change. They're learning a new way of life based on the teachings of the one they call their master, or as we would call him, Lord. It's dead simple. But it is a bit more than that. You see, it's, to be a disciple is not just becoming like one's teacher by learning what that teacher teaches and following how they live, it also involves unlearning, uh, becoming less like your old self. So it involves a radical unlearning, in fact, of an old way of life. 
You unlearn it because you recognize that before you met Jesus, you were not good. You were not wise. Just the opposite, in fact. So that helps us really neaten up this definition, at least I hope it does, that a disciple is a learner looking to become like his or her teacher. Dead simple, right? Now this involves both learning and unlearning. You could even say that discipleship in the New Testament looks a lot like repentance, doesn't it? Turning from something, recognizing it's wrong. Turning to something, recognizing it's right. Indeed, that's what the Christian life is. It's turning from sin and putting off the old self and turning, off, turning to Jesus, putting on the new. Now, with that in mind, I want us to look again at Matthew 28, 18 to 20 and hear the Great Commission again. I want us to think about how this definition sharpens our understanding of what Jesus is actually instructing us to do when he says, make disciples. But also, I want us to ask this question. Where in the text do we see that transformational learning is what is involved when we make disciples? Where do we see that we've to unlearn stuff and learn other stuff? Where do we see that together? So let's read uh, Matthew 28. Uh, let's just read verse 16 just to give us some context. This is God's words. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Amen. This is God's word. So did you notice how sharpening our conviction of what a disciple is helps us know what we should make? I hope it clarifies for us we're not making mere followers, people who are content just to associate with Jesus. I hope it clarifies for us instead that we're making learners who seek to become like their teacher and did you pick up on the unlearning bit and the learning bit? Maybe not, that's okay. What I want to say is that it's implied in the instructions that Jesus gives. And of course, this, this text includes one primary command, that's all. It sounds like it's a few, three or four to us, but it's actually in the original language, just one, and that is the making of disciples. But the subclauses in that command help us understand his instruction about what it is, what it means to make disciples. And what are the two things he says? Baptize and teach obedience. Uh, what better picture of unlearning and learning can you get than those two things? And I want to look at those two things on their own as you, and you'll see this as you follow on in your outline. So this is point two, baptism. Baptism is this radical unlearning of the old life. That's what Jesus commands us to do with those who are made to be disciples. So to become a learner of Jesus first requires, according to Christ, some kind of repudiation or a renunciation of an old way of life. It's saying with your mouth, believing with your heart, 
and showing it in your life that the way I've lived is wrong and I'm moving away from it, right? That's what makes becoming a disciple actually quite a radical thing to do. It is a big thing to do. And what we see in here is that a disciple, to do that, will, to show that how radical this unlearning of the old self is, a disciple will deny himself or herself. Think about Jesus' words in Luke 9.23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Well, there, in a nutshell, is an indication of just how serious it is to decide to follow Jesus Christ. Deny yourself. Take up this cross. In other words, it's the, the badge of discipleship. It is an association with Christ and his sufferings. It's to live the kind of life that Christ lived. Glorious, but hard, but full of promise and joy. So we see a disciple in the first instance will deny himself or herself. But a disciple, secondly, will get baptized because baptism marks that radical, decisive denial of the old life. It is the first step, really, that repentant sinners take. Uh, don't we see this in Acts chapter 2? When uh, Peter was preaching at the Pentecost, and to, he was declaring the mighty works of God, talking about how this Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. Now to people who were suddenly convicted of their sin, suddenly aware that they were not in light as they thought they were, but instead in the dominion of darkness, suddenly needing help to know what to do next, Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So turning away from sin is marked by this new thing called baptism for the believer. It's not something they've done before in their life. But he puts this decision to turn away, this radical turning away from the old way of life to start a new way of life, the first thing that we're called to do is to be baptized. Now, passages like these, coupled with the Great Commission in Matthew 28, show us really clearly that Jesus wants local churches like us to plunge new believers underwater at their request as a sign that we recognize their decision to take this radical step to become a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of his. And it also shows us that Jesus wants new repentant disciples to get baptized because baptism serves as this wonderful, tangible illustration and declaration that he or she has decisively turned away from the old understanding of life and embarked on the new life that he or she would live. Learning and living in obedience to Jesus. And this really is the flip side of baptism because baptism doesn't just re represent this symbolic repudiation of an old way of life. It marks this radical commitment to a new way of life. And Romans 6, 4 draws this up 
draws this out for us, where Paul says, we were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live, what? A new life. A new life. So what does this new way of life involve? Well, if baptism signifies the unlearning, this new way of life that baptism enables us to embark on is symbolized by submissive learning. So where baptism provides this great picture of unlearning the old way of life, in his own teaching, Jesus provides a picture of a picture to help us understand what it looks like to learn this new way of life, and it's the picture of a yoke. It's the picture of a yoke, and this is point three. A yoke, a devoted learning of the teaching of Jesus. So first of all, what is a yoke? Well, it's a farming tool. Uh, a yoke is a harness that a farmer puts on an animal uh, to guide it as he plows his fields. So why is the yoke a helpful picture of what it looks like to become a disciple of Jesus Christ? And how does this enforce, reinforce our understanding of the disciple as a learner? Well, because it underlines, first of all, Christ's authority, which is referenced very, very clearly in Matthew chapter 28, and underscores the necessity of obedience, of actually obeying him as Lord and walking in his ways. It shouldn't be a surprise when we get to Matthew 28 to hear this. Jesus didn't just say this at the end of his earthly life. He said it throughout. You read of him speaking to his disciples in John 15, saying, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Now, when you become a disciple, you are submitting to Christ's authority. That's what disciples do. A disciple will submit to Christ's authority. Matthew 28, 18 tells us that Christ's authority is all-encompassing authority. No one in heaven or, or on earth can call that authority into question. He has the right and the power to do as he pleases. And as his disciples, we are called to trust his authority and obey him. So as Matthew 28 says, the learning outcome for a disciple, it's not just knowledge, though knowledge is crucial. 2 Peter 1 brings that out for us very, very clearly. But it's obedience. And it's obedience that's motivated out of or by love for Jesus. And not driven by a fear of being wrong or berated. Now you might think, well, actually the yoke... That's not really a great picture. <laughs> it doesn't really motivate me to obedience. I mean, I don't really like the sound of the thought, uh, like the thought of having a brace over my neck. It sounds almost slavish. Well, that's why we need to hear what Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28 to 30 um, about this. In this passage, he tells us that a yoke is a symbol for a joyful, submissive learning. Where he helps us to see that a disciple is actually delighted to keep Christ's commands. A disciple is delighted to keep Christ's commands. So within that passage, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle 
and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm going to read that again. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Payne and Marshall in their book, Divine Project, say, Christ's yoke brings us strangely a paradoxical freedom from the heavy burden of sin through forgiveness and freedom to learn a new way of life that is fit for the kingdom of God. So you see, what they're trying to say is, and what Jesus is communicating by his, the way he talks about the lightness of his yoke, is to say, this is a good thing. It's not a slavish, hard thing. It's the right thing. Because this is the way life is meant to be lived when we live according to his clear and his gracious and his good instruction. Indeed, that's the way we were meant to be living in this world under God. But because of our rebellion and sin, we don't. We learn to live the opposite way. So to obey everything he has commanded is to take on his yoke and to commit ourselves for a lifetime of devoted learnership. Learning from him. Accepting the authority of Jesus as the teacher and devoting yourself to becoming, uh, to learning from him and becoming like him. It's really quite simple. So in summary then, what is a disciple? What can we say? Well, a disciple is, let's try and neaten this up a little bit so it's at least a little bit more memorable. If not by the sentence, then at least by the little green man uh, that I've colored in and put a big L sign over his head. That's not loser, that is learner, just to be clear, okay? Before anyone jumps in, terrible. Anyway, what is a disciple? A disciple is a forgiven sinner, devoted to becoming like Jesus through learning and keeping the teachings of Jesus. Do you see how that's just a bit more, a bit sharper than saying a follower of Jesus? Do you see how that starts to put some kind of meat on the instruction that Jesus has given us to help clarify for us as a church family exactly what we're trying to make collectively? I think this is the definition by which we ought to evaluate personally and collectively whether or not the thing we call disciple-making that we're doing is actually disciple-making. We've got to evaluate ourselves on that basis. And I hope you will have some fantastic discussions on this in your growth groups as you study it. And I want your answers I'd love to hear what you think. Because 
there's a kind of application explosion when you start to think this through a little bit. But you think of all the different areas that it starts to impact on personal life, church family life. I mean, you end up asking questions like, how devoted are we to learning Jesus and becoming like him? I'm not sure I can say that I am as devoted to learning Jesus as I should be, and I'm one of your pastors. What about you? How submissive are we to the teachings of Jesus Christ? How seriously do we take his lordship? How seriously do we take it that he is king over all and yet we either dismiss what he says, downplay what he says, just conveniently ignore what he says? Well, we start to look more like undisciples than disciples, don't we? I'm concerned about that for my soul. I think we should all be concerned about these things for each other. Because this yoke picture keeps coming up again and again in Old Testament and New Testament, actually. It seems that we can either be stiff-necked people. That's one of Isaiah's, God's main criticisms of his people in the book of Isaiah. Stiff-necked. You know what that means? That in relation to the authority of God, they are stiffening their neck against the yoke. They don't want to embrace it and follow his ways. They want to do their own thing. And we see where that ended up in exile. But if we start to apply this definition of a disciple to our own lives and to each other, we will ask these questions. Are we stiff-necked as individuals or as a church family? Do we reject the yoke? Do we want all the freedom of, you know, forgiveness? And, oh, it's great to sing these songs when we get Do we want the community that believing in Jesus brings, but not the obedience? That's not a disciple. So what does this definition of discipleship mean for our ministries? Do some need to stop? Do others need to start? Do some need to change their focus? If you're a leader in a ministry in the life of this church, then ask yourselves these questions. Is my ministry aligned with this, with what Jesus calls us to make, primarily? And I'd love to hear what you think about that. Maybe we can ask this question. Have we made the radical decision to unlearn the old way of life and yet aren't baptized? Jesus made baptism this normal part of becoming, becoming a disciple. It's a simple matter of obedience and nothing should really get in the way of us doing it. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a believer of Jesus. You're here because someone else brought you and you're being polite. Or maybe you're here because you actually have been thinking about this to some extent and you wonder what this Christianity is all about. Maybe you're somewhere in between. I wonder if you've made a radical decision or thinking about this radical decision to unlearn an old way of life and become a disciple of Jesus Christ for all the reasons he says you should. He says this unyoked life is a matter of rebellion. The Bible very clearly just calls that sin. And God very clearly tells us that sin will be punished. 
but Jesus died to take away sin and hold out to us the offer of forgiveness. It's free. You have to receive it, but you have to believe it. You can't just say it with your mouth. You have to believe it in your heart. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, you will be a disciple, and then you can get baptized. And you can then live in the happy knowledge of this full and free forgiveness. You can live in a way that life was meant to be lived in joyful submission to the gentle yoke of Jesus, the Lord over all. And my encouragement for you is to take Peter's words at Pentecost for yourself. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. But let's not forget this definition. As individuals and as a church family, let's talk about it. Let's try and neaten it. I'm generally quite verbose. I extend things unnecessarily. Why don't we try and shorten this together? I think together we can come up with a brilliant definition that is faithful to the definitions that Jesus himself gives us so that we can sharpen our convictions, so that we can obey Jesus as best we possibly can. That's what we should want for each other. And that's what we should want for our church family. To be disciples, forgiven sinners, devoted to becoming like Jesus through learning and keeping the teachings of Jesus. We're gonna take some time to respond to God. Uh, we're gonna do it in quietness for three or four minutes. I've got a few points on screen that will help you. And there are different points depending on where exactly you're at. I hope you can read those. Let me read them out just in case. Is that too small? Next week I'll make it bigger, I promise. Okay. Uh, so first of all, think again about the definition of a disciple given in the sermon or on your sheets. How does it compare with your own definition? Does anything need to change to align your understanding with that biblical definition? Maybe you could think of one or two things that you could do this week to start changing and then pray. Having thought about that, pray and ask God to help you do that. Secondly, think about the definition with our church family in mind. Uh, consider whether or not we're making the kind of disciples Jesus commissions us to make. Consider, about, consider and pray about areas that need to change. Thirdly, for a closer look at things Christ wants us to unlearn and to learn, then read either, because you'll only have time for one of these, uh, Colossians 3, 5 to 14, or Galatians 5, 16 to 26, and then, first of all, turn those words into a prayer, and then secondly, later on, ask someone you trust to pray for you as you pursue Christ-likeness in this area. Uh, fifthly and fourthly, in making disciples, uh, baptism is the first step in radical unlearning of the old way of life and a commitment to a new. Why don't you read Matthew 28 again or Romans 6 again? Examine yourself, turn it into a prayer and talk to someone if need be. And if you're not a believer, maybe you could think of one question you might ask a Christian friend to help you better understand some of the things that we've been thinking about tonight. So, Lots to think about. Wherever you're at, you just choose one and let's take uh, two to three or four minutes. We'll see how we're getting on. In the quietness, let's bow our heads 
and then I'll bring our time to a close um, uh, shortly after that.